Hello and welcome to Idea City, a TEDxYYC podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Gilbert, and today we're talking to Josiah Sinanen, host of Calgary's award-winning Anti-Culture podcast, a cultural podcast that seeks to re-establish the North American concept of culture by focusing on the stories of the individuals around us. Josiah shares with us what he's learned hosting a nationally recognized podcast, his approach to interviews with controversial guests, and his explorations on the evolving concepts of identity in the 21st century. Hello and welcome to Idea City. I'm your host, Andrew Gilbert, and today we're talking to the host of the Anti-Culture Podcast, Josiah Sinanen. Josiah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about you. Since earning his degree in international relations in 2017, Josiah has had a wide range of experiences in the media, with NGOs, and in the digital marketing and political realms. Uh, these include working at North America's largest homeless shelter, studying at Paris's Institut d'études politiques, and working in Sierra Leone with nonprofit Freedom Tree, creating a curriculum for villagers combating infant and maternal mortality. Josiah is also the host of the Calgary-based podcast Anti-Culture, currently in its fifth season. Anti-culture seeks to challenge and re-establish our view of what culture and identity really mean by listening intently to the unique experiences of those around us. Coming from a mixed background and having experienced different cultures worldwide, Josiah started the show to re-establish the concept of culture that we've developed by labeling those around us before we hear their full stories. Sharing those stories has is proving to be a popular idea as Anti-Culture won Best Outstanding Society and Culture Podcast at the 4th Annual Canadian Podcast Awards this past summer. So Josiah, how are yes. you feeling? I'm feeling good. Yeah, there's yeah. Uh, yeah it's been uh, a busy time, obviously, based on what you just read. <laughs> yeah, you, you do tend to keep busy. It seems. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with the big question, Josiah. What's one idea you have for making a better city or community? Yeah, I grew up, I was born and raised in Calgary, and I found that Calgary has a really interesting culture um, as a city. I find that it's very different than a lot of places worldwide, and part of that is how we're spread out, which is kind of what we're known for. There's so many suburbs in Calgary. It's, you know, you're still in Calgary if you drive half and 45 minutes to another community in the south of the city from the north. And that's not the case in cities like Toronto or London, England, or, you know, those bigger places. If you drive 40 minutes um, out of the city, then you're in a different city. So I thought that was really interesting, um, especially because Calgary is not a huge city population wise. And so growing up, it really felt like I was in my own little pocket. And it I almost made me feel like I wasn't connected to the bigger idea of what Calgary was until I grew older. And something that comes to mind when I think about a better city and a better community is I really like the idea of um, everyone feeling like part of the collective um, to a certain extent, obviously, but um, I think there's something so special about having a community feeling in a city. And I think Calgary really has that potential because we have such a small population, quote unquote small, but um, I think it's, yeah, we're a new city, we're a smaller city, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to really build what being Calgarian means. And I think that concept as a whole is something that's important. Um, yeah, and it was important to me growing up. I wanted to feel like I was part of this bigger thing. I wanted to feel like I was proud of being from Calgary and that that meant something. So I think that that's a big key in building a good city and community is feeling like you're a part of what's going on around you in the place that you are. Now, jumping off of what you've been mentioning, how how uh, wide wide ranging Calgary is in mm -hmm. terms of the, the people and the location. Now, Calgary is one of the more diverse uh, diverse cities, pardon me, in, in the, the country, right? Yeah. So, what effect has that had on your work and your projects? Quite a lot, I think. You know, growing up, I grew up in two different communities that I can remember. Um, so, I did grow up part of my childhood in the Northeast, which was of course very diverse. My neighbors were from Lebanon. I had someone across the street from Saudi Arabia. There was quite a diversity around me. And then um, when I was older, uh, we lived in the Northwest 
in like the Panorama Hills area. And that was very different, <laughs> especially at the time it was majority white and like a lot of Asian immigrants there as well. And yeah, I think just, I think I felt lucky to grow up um, where I did with such a diversity around me. Um, obviously when you're young, you're not thinking about complex ideas like religion or race or um, who's an immigrant and who's not. I just knew that, you know, there was people around me and they were different than how my family was. And that always intrigued me. And I think that's partly why I grew up to take an international relations degree and want to travel lots. And I'm really fascinated by that, um, again, common experience of humanity that we all have. And uh, I don't know if I would have had that same curiosity had I not grown up where I did. So I think it's an advantage that Calgary has. There's so many learning opportunities at our fingertips when we talk to, talk to the people around us. Um, you know, even just the shopping experience. If you go to the market, there's such a variety of things that you could buy. Um, we have, um, you know, the TNT even, like something like that. There's enough of a community and a demand for those international products, for international um, even shows to come here that we can all benefit from. Um, we don't have to be excluded from those things. We can actually participate in them. And I think that's actually part of what makes Calgary what it is, which is kind of cool. That's great. That's a really good answer. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a bit about your podcast. So um, can you explain the genesis of anti-culture? How did the idea for this podcast come about? Yeah, so I graduated in 2017 from the University of Calgary. And as I mentioned, my degree was international relations. And I loved that program. It was amazing. I was kind of thinking about maybe going a political route, um, you know, working in diplomacy or like maybe the UN would be a goal one day or something like that. Um, I was really interested in world politics. Um, but after I graduated, I just kind of had this like itch to get into journalism and broadcast journalism. That's something that I've been interested in since I was in junior high. And actually, before I decided to do my international relations degree, I did get accepted to all the broadcast programs here in Calgary. And I decided I wanted to kind of take some more time and have more experience, um, which led me to actually choosing a degree. Um, but yeah, so after I graduated, I kind of just felt like, I want to bring an idea to the table and I want to like use my voice and talk to people and have a reason to do so. And yeah, it was funny. I was just kind of, this is like, yeah, 2017. So a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about the serial podcast by NPR and I was obsessed with that podcast and I'd never really gotten into that medium until the serial podcast. And that kind of made me branch out into uh, more NPR programs specifically. So I used to love listening to This American Life. There's a podcast called Invisibilia, which I really liked. And yeah, just I was just kind of thinking about it one day and I was like, I think I could do something like this. And I really like the way that they approach stories and people and you don't really need much to start a podcast. And I didn't know how much it would explode the idea of podcasts by like 2018, but it did. So I'm glad I got my skin in the game early. Um, and yeah, it was scary, but I kind of was like, what can I talk about? And originally the first season, if you go back and listen to it, every single guest on my show that season was from Alberta. And I specifically wanted to highlight um, different perspectives in our province. And so, yeah, honestly, it's kind of a weird story. But the first inspiration where I was like, OK, I think I can put a show together is I have a cousin um, who lives north of Edmonton. Uh, basically, yeah, on an acreage, has been there his whole life, um, is pretty close-minded, <laughs> I, I would say. Um, and yeah, but it's, I, yeah, it's kind of funny because I, as I mentioned, I come from a mixed race background, but um, on my mom's side, it's like, you know, she has generations of family that have had farmland in Alberta. So I feel very Albertan um, part of me. And my dad's a second generation immigrant. So I kind of have this like, crazy diversity of opinions whenever I go to a Thanksgiving dinner dinner <laughs> and um and I think there's an importance to being exposed to a range of different opinions and even if you disagree with something there's benefit in hearing from those people and trying to understand why they think the way they do um and kind of just treating them like humans not dehumanizing them and pushing them to the side so my cousin 
um, he made a status one day on Facebook that I saw and it said, um, it just said Alberta colon fit in or F off, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Like, obviously if someone else saw that in my circle, I'm sure they would be appalled, but I was just like, I know this guy and it's so funny. And like, he knows that I'm seeing this as, you know, my dad might see it. Who's person of color, who's an immigrant. And, um, and then it just made me question what, what does my identity as an Albertan mean? It obviously means something very different to what he thinks it is. And um, how many people think the way he does? Is that like at the majority of how Albertans feel? Like there's this, we have such a strong quote unquote culture that <laughs> you have to fit in or F off. I, I don't know if I agreed with that. And I'm proud to be Albertan. So it just kind of made me think. And I was like, man, I would love to explore that concept. And so uh, I actually had him on the show and I talked to him about some of those thoughts and he did a great job and I think he was very honest and um, obviously he didn't drop any bombs like that, but he did, he did say some things that made his opinion very obvious. Um, but then beyond that, I had a uh, really great story with a, um, a girl whose family was kind of the only black family in Lac La Biche, which is a Northern community. Um, I talked to someone who lives um, outside of high level in this place called Zama City, which is super remote, Alberta. I talked to an indigenous person from Alberta and everyone had something to comment on the province itself. And that was really cool. And kind of the point I think subconsciously I was trying to make with that first season is um, being Albertan doesn't just mean one thing. And I loved that idea. <laughs> and so yeah, so the show evolved from there. Um, I'm a very social person, so I didn't want to limit the show anymore. The second season, I started to kind of introduce people outside of the province, people outside of Canada. And then it just kind of became about this concept of what is cultural identity and does it even matter? And if it does matter, what parts of it matter? And so, yeah. Long-winded answer, but that's all the details. No, that's great. Keep them coming. And yeah. actually, you're segueing perfectly into my next question, which is, what is cultural identity? Yeah, I feel like, well, it's not something that I can define by myself. I think that everyone has a different concept of it. And I like that about that term. I think that it's what you make it. How do you see yourself? What is your culture? And you know, there's different degrees of depth that the concept has too. So for example, does culture just mean your ethnicity? Does it mean your religion? Does it mean how your family celebrates the holidays? Yes, that's all like under this umbrella of culture, but I think there's something we're missing there when we kind of just simplify, when we simplify it and just kind of put labels on different sectors of an individual. I think, you know, someone could be, um, yeah, someone could be, let's see, I don't know, a black woman who's the CEO of a company. But what if she is also, um, you know, a conservative Christian who's also a lesbian, who's also, you know, there's no, you can't box people in anymore. And I think you might assume someone has an opinion that they have just because of how they look or what communities they're associated with, and that can be completely wrong. And, uh, and yeah, I think I'm passionate about that also because of my faith background a little bit. Um, I'm a Christian and I think that there's so much misinformation about what being a Christian means these days and what going to a church means these days. And there's a lot of people that have given it a bad name, but, um, yeah, I find that there's, when you hear, when someone hears someone's a Christian or like part of a church, there's so many assumptions that get thrown on that person immediately. There's so many things that people are thinking in the back of their head. I can't talk about this with them. And I think that that's wrong. And I think that's kind of why I have that passion about it. Um, so that's one side of it. The other side is um, how I look. People don't really know where I come from. People assume my ethnicity quite often or get confused by how I'm presenting. And I like that about myself because I've been able to have really candid conversations with people from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds. I think because I'm not visibly a part of any group, um, unless you're assuming that I'm Mexican or Arab, of which I'm neither. So, so it's just kind of funny. So um, yeah, there, I just kind of find that I'm, I live in this like ambiguous space quite often. 
And it almost feels like an act of justice to like bring forth people that you might box in or not give a chance to hear from. And I want to give them that platform so that we can actually all learn to relate to each other on some level. Because I think we all have that possibility. Um, yeah, of just expanding our mindset in that way. And I think that's what culture is, is it's how you view the world and how you perceive things. And it might, it's not necessarily even connected to the things that people might label you with. And that's what I'm trying to kind of, yeah, just kind of rework in my, in my project. Now, I, I love you mentioning uh, living that sort of ambiguous space. Uh, for those of us who don't live in an ambiguous space in that way, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? What are the experiences of being ambiguous, for lack of a better term? Uh, man, that's a hard question. I think, I mean, I don't know what it's like to not be in that space, which is kind of like, so I'm not sure. Um, but I do think there are advantages that I've found. And I think there's more going to be more and more people like me <laughs> as the world progresses and there's, you know, multicultural families. Um, but it's, yeah, I think the advantage is that I don't feel like, oh, I have to be careful with how I say this. I don't feel like I'm particularly, like, I don't have an affinity to one group of people. I don't have like a I mean, I do have my own biases, of course, it's impossible not to, but I don't feel like I have to defend certain principles because I don't actually, I'm not able to fully identify with anything. <laughs> and I think because of that, um, I'm able to identify with everyone and kind of take a step back. And I, that's why I love travel. That's why I've done all that international stuff too, because something I love is integrating myself into a different country or a different set of customs or people and seeing the world from their perspective. I think I have the ability to do that without getting too wound up about it. I think <laughs> that's definitely a benefit that has helped me. And yeah. And I mean, like, I don't think I don't, this isn't a hell that I die on that I'm ambiguous and I can do anything I want. <laughs> I think it's just like, that's been my experience so far. I think I've noticed that it's easier for me to integrate in different situations compared to other people. I don't get hung up on certain things that, I don't know, people of a particular group might. Even within my faith, like I feel like I'm very, um, I definitely wholeheartedly believe in my faith background, but I'm also very open-minded and approachable with varying spectrums of that Christianity um, group. And I don't think that's, what we tend to do. We tend to want to divide and point out differences. And I just feel like I've been able to pretty easily just not think too much about that and still know how I feel. And I think, yeah, that just brings to mind, I think there's a lot of people that are, I don't know, uh, uh, disheartened or uh, confused or um, waste a lot of energy on because they feel like they have to associate a certain way or with a certain group, they then change their thoughts to match. Um, maybe not necessarily what they're feeling in their heart, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we're obsessed with the outward visible differences um, or the labeling. And I think that can be really damaging sometimes. Um, and yeah, I could go down a rabbit trail about that, but, and there's nothing wrong either with being proud of being in a group or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, um, yeah, I'm, it's just something I've picked up on being ambiguous is I just found that I didn't have to worry too much about those things um, as much as other people. I guess the disadvantage, I'll try to make this part shorter, but <laughs> disadvantages are I have struggled with culturally identifying myself or um you know and i and honestly it is an energy drain when i have to spend 20 minutes or <laughs> to an hour talk, telling people where i'm from quote unquote because i'm not from anywhere i'm i was born and raised here and both of my parents are born and raised here they just happen to be interracial and so it's that can be frustrating because it it kind of goes against everything i just said like I'm trying not to put myself in a box. Um, 
and I get it, but it's also, yeah, it's been hard. And I think growing up when I was younger, there were a lot of different um, ethnic groups and cliques and people that related on certain terms. And I didn't have that sense of belonging. Um, yeah, people thought it was weird that my parents were together when I was younger. I had a uh, instructor of a swimming class I was in. My mom picked me up one day and she said, are you sure that's your mom? <laughs> Which is crazy. And that really hurt me as a child. And it made me question like, what? how does everyone see my family? Um, what are people assuming about my family? Um, and then, yeah, there's been a lot of assumptions about my sexuality, my religion. And those things are hurtful too. There's a lot of labeling that happens. And I think that's been really hard for me. And the way I combat that is by giving everyone ample opportunity to explain themselves because I know what it's like to be pushed into a corner and expect to be a certain way. And that can be confusing too. Um, and I think for any kid, it's, it's confusing to try and figure out where you fit in or what your beliefs are and what hills you are going to die on. And it feels like you're almost forced to do that. But for me, it was very confusing because I didn't know, you know, how I'm like, why am I not as passionate about certain things as other people? Why is the world not black and white to me? And um, so, yeah, so I felt like a duck out of water quite a lot. Um, and I think that was a disadvantage, not so much anymore. I think that's fascinating because you say, you know, why is the world not black and white to me? It's it's because you were seeing so many people try to fit you into a black and white world and realize that that world doesn't exist. Totally. Yes. I think that's very true. And yeah, I still, I, I honestly, like when I'm talking about it now, I'm like, wow, I kind of feel like an alien because I think we're all, we're all trained to see the world in very black and white terms. And I still can't, it's like almost impossible for me to see it that way. But I think that sort of leads to the strength of your podcast, if you don't mind me mentioning that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've been very fair with a lot of your interviewees. And you, you do mention a number of times you don't always agree with what everyone says, but you do give them a fair uh, chance to say their piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think my mindset with that, too, is like, I, I, as I said, I don't feel particularly passionate that everyone should think the same way as me on the level of opinion and so I'm very intentional about not like it's not it's not for me to have a, a soapbox you know it's it's more like I guess what I hope the show would be is kind of like getting people to retrain the way they think and talk to other people and kind of putting these candid conversations I've had my entire life on display because I think it is unique and I think actually like if you i'm learning this more and more but like good journalism is considered to be something that's unbiased and shows the whole story and shows all angles and i love that and i think that's why i'm drawn to journalism as a medium because it's supposed to be that and that is a world where i can feel comfortable in so yeah now let's talk a bit about uh, the podcast because mm -hmm. anti-culture is a very striking title. <laughs> what does anti-culture mean to you? What are you trying to convey with that title? Yes, it is a very striking title. I was very unsure about it because uh, it sounds like a metal band almost. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want people to get the wrong idea. And I kind of knew that they would, which is fun because kind of like my guest, there's a little bit of controversy that, you know, unless you listen to the episode... <laughs> you might miss out on and I've gotten a lot of angry messages over the years about some guests that I've had before people have heard the show but the the I guess the inspiration behind that name is yes I'm not against culture which is kind of the first thought you might have when you hear that name um I'm not against culture I am trying to be the opposite or the opposing force of what I believe our understanding of culture is so I guess I'm trying to, the, the tagline I like to say a lot is I'm trying to redefine um, what we mean when we say culture, when we say cultural identity. And I think we have a limited view of it now, so I want to expand it. So I think it's, I do think culture is the opposite of your ethnic background. I think it's the opposite of the groups you identify with. Those are part of what might influence your culture, but it's not what your culture is. And I think every individual has their own culture. 
So I'm almost kind of making up a new word by putting the same <laughs> title on it. But um, I think it's just a, an approachable way to think about it. Um, and I want people to question that term. So, yeah. So jumping off of that, you've written that, quote, the true culture of an individual and their lives is only found when we take the time to hear what they have experienced from their own point of view. Why is it important for you to find that true culture? I think it is important for everyone to consider that when we talk to anyone. <laughs> That's something I'm passionate about. And I often have found, almost with every single guest, that while I'm listening to them or if they're telling a story, there is something that is so unexpected that comes up. And or and it's it's more often than not one of their opinions that catches me off guard. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think that person would think this way. But something influenced them to think that way. Something in their personal culture influenced them to think that way. And I think that's what makes people so beautiful. There's no, you know, you can, someone can say, oh, I consider myself right wing or left wing on the political spectrum. I think our tendency is to assume everything else they must believe. Um, no, that's not true. I think there's um, there's people that identify as left that you know disagree with abortion. Believe it or not, those people exist. This the inverse is also true. And you know, I think we've just really simplified, especially in this like Twitter day and age, um, what people's opinions should be and what they are. And we look for people to speak their minds because we assume that they have that opinion, but we're not listening we're projecting onto people and expecting them to be a character. And so if we're taking away the listening aspect, we're not actually going to understand each other. And that person is probably not going to understand themselves either, because just like I used to feel they're pushed into a corner and they think, oh yeah, I do like this group of people and I feel an affinity towards them. So I, therefore I must believe this. And I think what changes when you ask someone the right questions, when you sit with them and listen to what's influenced their worldview, they might have a completely unexpected opinion and that's okay. And that's interesting. And that's how we learn from each other. And so, um, yeah, it's just something I'm passionate about. And I, I'm really trying to make that point um, as much as I can with the interviews I choose. Now, you've mentioned getting a lot of opinions that were unexpected from certain guests or being caught off guard. So I'm curious, what has most surprised you in your conversations with guests over the last five years? Oh man, I think, um, yeah, I think it's, actually, I'll say this. I think something that surprised me is that a lot of my guests are uncomfortable talking so intimately about <laughs> themselves. And obviously I try to make them feel comfortable, but they're not used to those type of questions being asked. They're not used to going to that level um, with people. And I think, yeah, there's a few guests that come to mind. Um, actually, one of them is Mike Morrison, who is a Calgarian and doesn't live here anymore, but used to. And yeah, he has his reputation with Mike's Bloggity Blog. He's a bald gay man and like loves Calgary. And um, has been a part of a lot of controversial things um, in order to kind of represent his community. And I just thought it was really, um, yeah, I'm going to say this. I just thought it was really endearing to talk to him and let him share his story. It's something that brought him the most joy. He didn't want to talk about, you know, protesting some kind of evangelical movement in Calgary. He wanted to talk about when he got to meet Kelly Ripa and he wanted to talk about um, the things that make him happy outside of all this like image we've put around him. And um, I just think that's so much more interesting and useful to know what makes someone happy and like what, who they really are. I don't want to label him as, you know, this angry anti-Christian guy um who's like thinks he's the king of the internet <laughs> which a lot of people have labeled him i want to like talk to him and i want to hear what his upbringing was like being gay in alberta what challenges he faced but also what does he love about his life right now what are the things that um 
that we might not know about him that actually point us to a better understanding of who he is. And yeah, same with Rachel Zolzol, um, which is very controversial. I had a lot of um, Black people that weren't happy that she was on my show saying that I was endorsing her and I wasn't endorsing her. I thought there was more to the story that the media didn't cover and sure enough there was. And it was a very complex story. She has lived a very traumatic life since she was young. And this is also, by the way, this isn't me defending her. This is me telling the facts. <laughs> she was in an abusive household and she felt a need to protect her adopted um, black siblings. And sure, maybe it's wrong of her to <laughs> not represent herself um, accurately. And I understand how that can be hurtful to a group of people, but that's something the news didn't talk about. They didn't get into the detail of the circumstances in which she landed in. So it's not up to me to say, oh, Rachel Dolezal's a horrible person and is so insensitive to race. Actually, if you look at her as a person, she has a love for justice and she comes from a very hurt place. And um, I think we should have grace for things like that, even if we don't understand. And so um, I don't even remember what your question was, but there's been a lot of surprises. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm by no means a perfect interview. I'm learning a lot, but I think it's just, yeah, people are shocked when I ask certain questions. They're not expecting me to. I think Rachel, as an example, was probably getting ready to turn on her defensive mode. But then when I gave her an opportunity to talk about what happened in her family, she just went on and on. And it didn't feel like she was defending herself. It felt like we were having a conversation. And I never said, oh, so that's why you <laughs> identify as Black incorrectly. I didn't ever voice my opinion. I just let her speak and continue to ask questions. And that's when you get to the good stuff. Um, I think we cut people off very quickly when we put them in that corner and force them to defend themselves or put an expectation on them. Um, it just defeats so much of the story. So I happen to agree with you. My own background in journalism has taught me exactly what you're saying. Mm. Why do you think we seem to have this tendency to want to box people in, to cut people off before they give their full, uh, full defense of themselves? I think because we're lazy and it's easy. <laughs> I don't think all of us feel like we have the capacity to understand everyone around us. And we're so self-absorbed with what's going on in our own spheres. I mean, who has the time to go out of their way to talk to someone that they know they think they won't agree with? We are obviously wanting to avoid conflict. Hopefully some people aren't, but <laughs> um, there's a way you can enter into a relationship with people that are different than you that doesn't have to include conflict. Um, and that can, I guess, just be based on like a love and appreciation of who they are. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just really, I, I guess, yeah, to get personal, to get kind of extreme, something I do feel um, is part of my cultural identity is the love I have for people. And I've said this before, and I haven't said it to a lot of people, but like, um, if I were to be enlisted in the army and I had to go to war, I actually don't think I would ever kill anyone. <laughs> I would die first before I killed someone because I don't feel... I mean, that's a whole like political opinion, I guess, but like, I don't feel like it's my right to take away someone's life. Um, and there's no cause that would dr bring me to that point. And yeah, I don't know why I said that, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think it's just, yeah, I just want us all to kind of have that, not the same mentality. Obviously, I'm not endorsing that if I have huge respect for our veterans and I know that there was importance to that and I know the the, the price that that costs. Um, but I'm saying that there's a beauty in not seeing people as the enemy and in actually stepping into those situations on purpose. I think it's just a way we can challenge ourselves. So how do you think that challenging ourselves in that way by focusing on individuals helps us to better understand the concept of culture as a whole. I think it actually uh, will challenge your concept of culture when you do that. I think it will, the walls, the wallpaper will start to peel, the concept will start to crumble. 
because um, what it boils down to is, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I think it's the point is you find common ground and your relationships are no longer about um, being in an echo chamber and serving one another. It's actually appreciating differences um, and seeing the, the human thread that kind of connects us all. And so, yeah, I think if you are trying to challenge yourself to expand your circle or maybe talk to someone that you're afraid to talk to, um, I think, you know, there's no losing. I think it, it takes practice, but I think it's worth exploring because I think you'll find that the things you hold really tightly to in your own identity actually don't matter that much. <laughs> That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you've written of your podcast that it, quote, seeks to reestablish the North American concept of culture by focusing on the stories of the individuals around us. Now, I find the use of the word reestablish very interesting. Why does it need reestablishing? So my understanding of the North American concept of culture, to define it, I think is, and this is my opinion, but I do think North American culture is all about boxing people in, and it's all about making these groups out of the collective and um, subconsciously separating people. And it starts when we're young, and it evolves as we grow older. And, you know, I look at other places and other people groups and I haven't seen the same thing. And I just think it's kind of unique to Canada and America. I think we're just kind of, I don't know whether it's, it's probably having to do with our history with indigenous peoples, with uh, slavery. We probably just, it's this deeply ingrained idea of the other. (laughs) And I just think that's, so weird and it's like simplifying so much uh so much that could be beautiful and because of how north america is right now we have an opportunity to actually be a representation of coexisting and um and learning from each other and there doesn't have to be this like yeah there doesn't have to be this fear of assimilating or not um i think (laughs) we should all be intentional with each other we're all in this land and space together and there's an opportunity to break that mentality and um yeah and i hope for that because i guess because of my family like i look at how different say that cousin that i interviewed in northern alberta is from you know my Trinidadian grandma when she's like cooking in my kitchen like both of these people are blood related to me and they would probably not have an enjoyable conversation together I can tell you that (laughs) but I have treated them the same way and um I mean yeah there's no denying like because of that experience it's like I think that's possible for everyone um and again I don't think my grandma and him would have an enjoyable conversation but I'm able to converse with both of them. And I think that's something I've learned that I want to reestablish that concept in other people too. Now, uh, you've interviewed a lot of big names on your podcast. You know, you mentioned Rachel Dolezal. Uh, off the top of my head, I can think Warren Kinsella was another big mm-hmm. one. Uh, Janela Massa, mm-hmm. right, from yeah. CBC. So what sort of differences in culture do people with a public persona have from those who are less well-known that you might have noticed in your interviews? Yeah, that's a great question. And truthfully, I don't think there's much of a difference. I think I think with the more public people that I've interviewed, there's more of... Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I think what the sense I get from those public personas is, is that they've almost superseded that concept a little bit because they're not they're almost on their own platform now right they don't need to have affirmation from being in a certain group necessarily um Warren Kinsella is a great example because he said openly on my podcast you know um people love his commentary it like divides a lot of people he's very controversial but he loves it he loves that he can say you know 
one year I voted for the Green Party, the next year I voted for the Conservative Party. And he's like, I actually have no party affiliation and people go crazy and think that I'm like, you know, obsessed with um, hating Justin Trudeau and I'm supposed <laughs> to be a liberal. And it's like, that is amazing to me. That's, and so I think it's cool that he has that ability to um, say, you know, I know I have a voice and I don't care what anyone thinks and I'm not, I'm gonna, actually gonna challenge um, your concept of me. And I think the same can be said for Janela Massa. I think she is very open about, um, yeah, she's very focused on her work. She's very passionate about being a journalist. Um, something interesting we talked about, she's always labeled as, you know, this is the first hijab wearing news reporter in North America. And, but something that she was so excited I asked her about was her Afro-Latina heritage. So she was like, her family's from Panama. And she um, is black <laughs> and she loves that about her, her lineage. And it's uh, something that no one talks to her about. People don't care that she speaks Spanish or where her family came from. They just are like, wow, it's a Muslim woman on our television screen. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I think she likes to challenge that concept too, because, um, and actually I had a Muslim friend ask me cause I was a panelist on her show and he's like, so that lady who's like, you guys are always talking about like pop culture on <laughs> the panel, but she's like a hijabi. Like, that's so weird. And I'm like, oh, like, so what? <laughs> like, this is part of her show. And I don't know. It, I just thought it was really funny. Um, and obviously, like, the, the religion of Islam is so diverse and there's so much um, varying beliefs and like many cultures within it. So I just thought that comment was so funny because even this person that shares her religion is boxing her in and assuming she shouldn't be talking about certain things, which is kind of crazy. So yeah. So, and that's kind of how she's outside of it. And Rachel Dolezal obviously is outside of what she wants us to think. And yeah, she, she never intended to um, use her story as a means to get publicity. She was outed by her parents um, in a court case and she had to own it. And I think she is very, um, she's fascinating to talk to because she mentions how Rihanna has endorsed her and um, people from South Africa, people from the Caribbean, they don't even think twice about her deciding to do that because their concept of culture is very different. And I know that to be true being partly from Trinidad. Like um, my dad is such a mix of things. He is East Indian, native Caribbean um Spanish and um the culture in Trinidad is a black culture it's very influenced by um yeah the Africans that live there there's been a development of um you know there's a rap and R&B scene there's the steel pan music there's the food that they eat that can be very West African influenced so when my dad's here in Canada a lot of people think he's just black um because he's from the Caribbean and he likes to rap <laughs> fun fact about my dad but um he wouldn't identify himself as black and um but he actually has tons of stories about how people would affectionately call him the n-word down there and mm -hmm. they had no problem with it because to them he was part of their community and um and he obviously doesn't use that word or like endorse people <laughs> using it but he just thought that was funny he's like my concept of race is so different because i actually my race isn't even trinidadian my race isn't black yet. I have to find this cultural identity partly to survive because he did all this high schooling at an all boys school in Trinidad, but also because he has no other choice. He's not going to go into all the details about what makes up who he is. He's living in that culture. Um, and so I just thought that was fascinating. And I think that's why Rihanna was <laughs> open to supporting Rachel Dolezal because they know that culture is not about just skin color. And I know that's kind of a touchy subject. And again, I'm not defending Rachel. I actually do think what she did was wrong. But I, the thing that I agree with about it is that, yeah, cultural identity is not just skin color. And um, yeah, I wish that people would expand their mindsets so that we got past that idea. Because frankly, like that is what racism is. <laughs> when, we're, when we're simplifying people based on things like that, um, yeah, so I'm just going to stop there, but <laughs> that's what I have to say. <laughs> no, that's a long and beautiful answer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've been doing this for five seasons now, is that right? Yes. 
Yeah. So what have you learned about uh, North America, North American culture by doing this podcast for five seasons? Yeah, I think similar to what I said earlier is that we have an opportunity here to start to shift how we treat the people around us. Um, yeah, there's some things about North America that are really fascinating. We are very unique in our treatment of the indigenous people, which actually at this point doesn't really make sense anymore. Why they can't get clean drinking water, why they are completely isolated from everyone else and why we ignore them, why there's so many missing and murdered indigenous women across Canada and the US. Why is that a marker of who we are? That's not really found anywhere else in the world. Um, and I think that that says a lot about North American culture. I think there's an underlying um, cultural uh, yeah, ailment in our society. And I think about how we all reacted to a couple dividing things that have happened, um, Trump being president and COVID-19. And I think that also speaks to our tendency to just separate everything and cause these group things. And it's crazy. You think about the history of Canada and the U.S. The U.S. had a crazy civil war, North and South. Canada was had its, Brent, uh, its British and French fight. <laughs> Um, to claim ownership. And there's always these two sides to everything. There's always this identity crisis. And yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think um, it's kind of funny too, when you look at America, there's obviously this like strong sense of nationalism, but what is that founded on? The fact that they were able to separate from the British and, you know, I don't know. It's just such a strange concept because it's it's almost something that, yeah, it's, it's weird because it has nothing to do with their ethnicity. Um, a lot of people that are American and proud are not from America <laughs> and they had no part in the liberation of America. Um, a lot of them have no idea, but they just know that they love that they're American. Um, so I just think we're just a very confused group of people. And <laughs> I think we made a lot of mistakes and now we're kind of paying the price of that. Um, I think a lot of things that happened in our past were very harmful. And it's almost like, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's almost like when you have a bad habit and you know it's a bad habit, but you keep doing it and you don't think the consequences are that bad and um, maybe you become proud of that bad habit. And then over time, you start to see the effects of that consistent behavior. And I think, yeah, what we're paying for today is um, it's coming out in ignorance. We're very ignorant of the things that are happening around us. We're not very empathetic towards the people that are around us. Um, I guarantee you that the majority of people in most Canadian cities completely ignored the fact that a bunch of refugees came into our country um, over the course of the past few years. I bet you haven't even talked to one of those refugees. And that's just crazy to me. It's like, we have an opportunity to be a symbol of um, common humanity and care and cooperation. And I think we only do that when it looks good on paper. It's not actually ingrained in our minds and in our hearts and in our culture. And so, yeah, so I just would like to challenge that. And I wish it wasn't like that. Well, that's a, a very sobering series of thoughts. <laughs> I know. Thanks wow. for sharing. <laughs> yes. So maybe to, to end on a bit of a higher note with these last couple mm -hmm. of questions, uh, what have you learned about yourself by doing this podcast for the last five seasons? I think I have just uh, become a lot more confident in where I stand on a lot of things. Um, and it's a very hard thing to explain, as I'm sure people are picking up from this podcast. I have lots of weird thoughts that kind of just come in and out. and um, But at the same time, I don't feel <laughs> very black and white about a lot of things, to be honest. And I really like that about myself. I think before it was something that frustrated me. But in doing this podcast, I think it's kind of my strength. And I'm encouraged to continue practicing that. Um, and 
I've also learned that I can pretty much access anyone I want to because I created this platform for myself, which is pretty amazing. I don't think people realize that, but if you have a podcast, people love to be on podcasts. So you can literally email whoever you want. I watched Rachel Dolezal's Netflix documentary and I thought, man, she would actually be great to have on the show. So controversial. And uh, I ended up ordering her book to kind of explore the concept a little bit more. And um, yeah, I was just able to email her and she was totally willing to talk to me. She gave me her phone number right away. Like, <laughs> and I think our assumption is that people don't trust other people and we're scared. But um, I think something I've learned is that because I know I'm a trusting person and I'm going to treat someone else with care. It's almost like people can pick up on that energy. And I think I'm very, people are very open to me. My theory is that some of that has to do with the ambiguity element of my personality. But um, I think it's honestly, yeah, the energy that I put out and uh, anyone can do that. Anyone can do that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's been very inspiring. It's been very challenging. There's some times where I'm like, unsure how much to share or how deep to go on this concept i just kind of want to let it speak for itself and yeah yeah it's been a good journey <laughs> so what do you hope that listeners of your podcast will take away from it i think in an ideal scenario what i like to imagine is someone tunes into an episode of my show and I think at first, maybe they're intrigued by the questions I'm asking. And then I want them to leave and be challenged to get deeper with the people around them. Um, maybe they work with someone that they haven't really talked to that has a crazy background story and you just never know. So I hope it just inspires people to explore the world around them. Stop being in your own little corner and actually talk to people and learn their stories. I want it to be inspiring. Now, Josiah, we've been going for uh, about 50 minutes now. I want to ask, is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I feel like I yeah. gave you a little too much, but you got it all. Well, that's <laughs> I loved it. Josiah, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We'd also like to acknowledge that Idea City was made on Treaty 7 land and was made possible by Hunter Hub for Social Innovation. This podcast was produced by Work Nicer, Andrew Gilbert, Kurt Archer, Simone Pabretza, and the TEDxYYC graphics team. Music for this podcast is by Sargent and Comrade.